Hello and welcome to the Hacking State podcast. Uh, this is your host, Alex Mershak. With me today is Robin Hansen. Robin Hansen is professor of economics at George Mason University. Robin, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. What what shall we well, talk about? Oh, um, yeah. So uh, this is the Hacking State podcast. Um, you know, we're a new um, a new show, and uh, really, what we're trying to do is find ways to innovate around the current limitations of the human OS. And I'm interested in um, the entire sort of chain of being, so to speak, uh, all the way from, you know, the human and biological and interpersonal level um, up to, you know, new mechanisms of governance. Um, and so your work actually covers a, an extremely wide range of, uh, of subjects and topics, uh, as many of the listeners uh, may know. Sorry, sorry about um, that. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, uh, but but today, you know, um, I, I mean, I see a lot of people have been having you speak lately about, um, you know, AI. Obviously, it's a very important topic and very hot right now. Um, as well as um, this uh, grabby aliens um, question that you've been uh, right. that you've posed, and um, those are some very interesting things. But I thought I would bring up something that you, you know, haven't talked about in a while, at least that I've seen publicly, which is uh, your interest in futarchy and uh, I guess prediction markets more generally. Um, okay, great. Yeah. So, so my question, I guess, just to start with, um, how do you think that we can begin using prediction markets in a more effective ways, you know, um, sorry, in more effective ways to just make decisions generally? Well, um, a lot of people, including yourself, are interested in talking in general about how we could improve our institutions. Unfortunately, there's a lot less energy for just trying things. Uh, but I'd say the limiting factor on getting better institutions is just doing small-scale trials. Not very expensive, not very large, but that's in fact where the world drops the ball. So we've got people who think about ideas and then work out arguments for them and do even lab experiments and math models. And then at the other end of the extreme, there are, you know, governments and organizations willing to adopt proven methods. Mm -hmm. And in the middle is the missing piece of taking a good idea and proving it at a small scale, at least, so that people would be willing to adopt it at a smart, larger scale. So I'd say that's the key problem with prediction markets. So I'm mainly interested in prediction markets that address and inform organizational decisions. That's where I think the big value is. So if you have a restaurant or a club or a business, you have some key choices you make. And there are many ways in which betting markets could give you good information about the decisions you make. Um, and if you're one of those people, you nod and you think maybe, but I'm busy. Right. <laughs> you know, I need to be getting on with my stuff. I don't necessarily just want to experiment with some new idea somebody has. That sounds kind of risky and low return relative to my priorities of doing my thing. And there are all these people who are saying, oh, well, I'm willing to be this altruistic person to devote my time and energy to helping make the world a better place. And I'm not just trying to advance some particular business or organization. And then those people, they want to write papers, they want to do podcasts, they want to talk at parties yeah. and speeches about how we should do governance better and how we should organize ourselves better. But the thing missing in the middle is 
taking one of those many good ideas and actually trying it out in small contexts and then working your way up to bigger ones. So I'm happy to tell you like what my best bet for small trials could be, but um, that's what I think is missing. Okay. So before we get into that, um, I would like to just clarify some of the points you just brought up. Um, so one of them is that you think there should just be more, I guess, experimentation or maybe in the seems I would call it like tinkering in general um, to just explore the possibility space a little bit more um, on a small scale for like what's feasible. Right. Um, the other is that, you know, you want to break out of sort of the, I guess, the academic model of just we're going to do a very highly controlled experiment in a laboratory setting um, and also get away from sort of this overly um, theoretical uh, and, and maybe bureaucratic uh, option, which is like, oh, we need to we need to start in instituting this in some you know large scale way. Um, so. Yeah, what would be some of the. Um, uh, good candidates in your mind for beginning to implement prediction markets on a small scale in terms of, uh, you know, reasonably sized institutions? And what are some of the challenges that are faced by getting people, you know, aligned and getting incentives aligned to actually, you know, use the markets effectively? Okay, so the key idea is that information is primarily valuable for making decisions. Uh, so what you want is to collect information that it's as close as possible to the decision that you're trying to inform that allows you to best sell the idea that they should bother to collect this information because it'll seem just obviously relevant. And the most straightforward way to do that is to estimate decision conditional outcomes. If we do this, what happens? Mm -hmm. If we do the other thing, what happens? If you can collect information that's directly about you know, decision conditional outcomes, then it's really obvious that it's relevant to your decision. So my key idea is to create betting markets that are really very close to key decisions. And then the question is, what decisions to start with? So the world's full of decisions you could inform, but what we want here is some decisions which happen a lot everywhere. Because we're going to spend some effort to do, you know, some trials, and then we're going to set up some practice and say, this is how we can do this. And then we want to be able to copy that to lots and lots of places. So the ideal decision to inform would be a sort of a decision that most everybody makes. It's pretty important to them. And a lot of people could speak to that decision. There's a lot of people who might know something relevant to get to participate. And mm -hmm. the, you know, the, the thing that you need to do to tell if it was a good decision doesn't take that long to find out. That is, you have to wait a bit to see whether it turned out, what how things turn out, and it, it doesn't take so long. Okay, so um, let me start with like a really simple version. It's so simple that you might think it's like not even worth bothering, but it, but this example is designed to be really easy to implement and really fast. So imagine a restaurant has um, specials every night on their menu, and their question is which items to put a special. And the goal is to put special items that will be ordered a lot. A lot of people will order that special, you'll make a lot of money on it, and that would be the thing. So the question is which of our item of our items to make specials. 
for each night. So say by a certain time of the day, each day, we'll need to know what our special is going to be. So we make sure we're all set up for that special. And it might be, you know, four o'clock or something. I don't know what, but you pick a time. You say, we need to decide by four o'clock what our special is going to be. And uh, the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to make a board, like a, a wall with pictures of these dishes that we might have as specials on it. And I'm going to give everybody in the back room, and the, you know, who's affiliated with the thing, a dart. And their job is to put their dart into one of these dishes. And the key strategy is going to be whichever two dishes have the most darts at four o'clock, those are going to be the specials. And there's going to be some prize, maybe $100 or something that's going to be divided up among all the people whose darts were in the dish that got that sold the most compared to those two dishes. Mm. So now your job is to guess what dish you think would most likely sell the most. But if it turns out two other dishes are, you know, the most popular, you got to move your dart to one of those two, you know, just before force. Otherwise your dart won't count for anything. Right. Right. And now it's sort of a paramutual in the sense that like, if there's three times as many darts in one dish as there are in another dish, you're going to ask yourself, well, do I think this is more than three times likely to be the best dish than that one? Because if I think it's only 60% likely, I want to put my dart in the second dish. And so the darts, the relative fraction of darts between these top two dishes would represent a consensus about the relative chances of those two dishes being the dish that sells the most at the restaurant that night. Okay, so I've addressed a small problem. What should be the two specials that night at a restaurant? But mm. notice what I did. I made a very simple mechanism. It's easy to explain to anybody. It doesn't take much time. There's not much overhead. It doesn't even take computers or anything. Uh, it's sort of obvious what it's about. What are the two best dishes? And it can repeat day after day. So what we want is to do experiments on something. We want to just try a lot of trials. We want to just over and over again to it. And then the idea is we'll start to see whatever goes wrong. Whatever you think the problems are, we'll see them. People will complain about them. Then we can make some changes, address them, try again, over and over again, you know, week after week, month after month, till we work out some bugs. Um, so... That's a very simple example. So that 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 example was designed to be just really easy to implement mm. and to go fast and get lots of data and it's cheap, okay? Now, now I'm gonna give you an example where there's a lot more money at stake. It's gonna be a little more work to set it up, but it's gonna be more valuable. Okay, so, um, well, First, I want to explain the mechanism through a, another application that I also think is promising, but isn't isn't a near as quite a nearer term thing. So that's going to be firing the CEO of a company. Okay, another conditional. So, okay, right. So the key decision we're trying to inform is: should the board of directors fire the CEO? Should they keep him? Okay. For this, the outcome we're interested in is the stock price of the company. Say it's a public company. So what we want is to fire the CEO if that would make the stock price go up, but not if it would make the stock price go down. So what we want to do is estimate the stock price of the company conditional on keeping the CEO or not. That's what we're trying to do. So I can do this with a, two stock markets. So in an ordinary stock market, we trade cash for stock 
And if the price is 22, you're supposed to ask yourself, is that too high or too low? If it's too low, you should buy. Too high, you should sell. And what you do when you estimate that price is to think of all the different scenarios that company could be in. And in each scenario, how much money is it worth? How much profit does it make? And what's the present value of that? Okay. And that's how you're supposed to decide whether to buy or sell in an ordinary stock market. Well, I'm going to make two new stock markets. They're just like an ordinary stock market, except trades are called off there if a certain condition isn't met. So in one of the markets, all the trades are going to be called off if the CEO doesn't stay after the end of this quarter as a, in the position of CEO. And the other markets are going to be called off if the CEO doesn't leave at the end of this quarter in their position. So now when you trade in these markets, you do the, pretty much the same thing, except you think of all the scenarios that are consistent with this condition. Because if the condition isn't met, the trade is as if it never happened. So in one market, you ask yourself, how much is this company worth averaging over all the scenarios where the CEO stays? And the other, you ask yourself, how much is this company worth if you average over all the scenario where the CEO leaves? And the difference between those two prices is then the market traders' estimates of whether you should keep the CEO or not, which price is higher. And so now you can see this is a valuable, important decision. Actually, most companies, you know, at some point have to ask themselves whether they should get rid of the CEO. Uh, so there's a lot of money at stake. And this is a very simple mechanism. The main thing we have to do is get people trading these two new stock markets. And we can do that just by direct subsidies. And that would be about socially viable thing. That's not what I would propose as the first attempt, because unfortunately, there are regulatory barriers to setting up these new stock markets. Mm, yeah. There's not a regulatory barrier to the dark thing I told you about in the restaurant, <laughs> but there is a regulatory right, right. barrier to these conditional stock markets because they're called derivatives and, um, you know, mm -hmm. most derivatives are not allowed to be sold to ordinary people. And, you know, that's a problem here. Anyway. Okay. So you can see how that would be valuable. So now I'm going to tell you the thing between these two, I think is, you know, the best first application, which is most organizations of say 10 or 20 people hire one or two or three people every year as new hires in the organization. And what they mainly want is people who, if they were to hire them, say a year or two later, would they would give them high performance evaluations. Mm. They would say, yeah, that was a good person to have. We like them. We, we want to keep them. Right. Okay. So now we do the same conditional vetting market. We set up markets where people can trade on the performance evaluation of each candidate if they were to be hired. And we then look at those prices as suggesting who to hire. And then for the people who are hired, we the markets go forward, the condition is met, and the trades happened. And so now, you know, later on when people actually get their performance evaluations, those who bought and sold those assets either made or lost money, depending on what price they bought or sold. So the idea here is this would be relatively easy to set up, right? Mm. You just need to like take the people in this organization nearby and give them some assets to trade in this market and look, let them meet the candidates and see their resumes and let them bet. And then, um, you know, see the prices, use that as a way to decide who to hire. Then a year or two later, pay them off based on, you know, what the evaluations turn out to be. So the key idea is this is something most organizations do. So if you can go through the extra trouble to get a couple of organizations to try this for a couple of years, 
and get a track record of how it works and importantly work out the bugs of whatever mm -hmm. are the obstacles to making this work, then you can make a lot of money selling this to everybody else because this is a valuable thing that most all organizations need. And you see, it's a pretty small scale. We, we don't need to change the constitution or anything here. Right. We just need to get a few organizations to try this out. So th this is a little bigger of a trial than the, the restaurant one, right? The restaurant one, you can get a new data point every day, right? Whereas with this hiring thing, we're going to get a few data points every year. And so, okay. you know, it's going to take longer to prove, right? But it's going to be worth a lot more what you do. Mm. So fundamentally, one of the things you're trying to do over time, regardless of what scale you're implementing this at, is train the market, right? You want to get better predictions over time. Um, I mean, and you might be happy with just good predictions at the beginning that never get better. I mean, you probably will get better, but I don't know if that's essential that it gets better. The question is like, does it, is it at least good enough at the beginning? Well, well, sure. sure. Okay. So maybe, maybe the, there's a type of um, learning that, that happens very, very quickly. Um, and there's not room for a ton of improvement um, immediately. But um, what are some of the, um, I guess, pitfalls of like a consensus mechanism like this? Um, obviously, in all the scenarios you're talking about, the, the micro scenarios, you have uh, varying levels of interest, right, in making this thing happen. And... Um, you know, there's always going to be some amount of like hidden information too, um, and maybe some amount of like stochasticity. So, um, if I'm a, let's just say I'm a manager or I'm a CEO, and you come to me and you say, uh, we we think if you did an experiment on this inside of your company, uh, it could be very beneficial for you. You'd have to run it for a few years, but overall, um. There could be some really massive improvements. And if you got the system working, you could go around and uh, provide it for other companies or maybe even tell them. Right. They could that last part it. would be my main pitch. Right I, right. I would be you know, pitching to some venture capitalists or business startup and saying, this should be your business concept. Mm -hmm. You first need to prove your concept through in some organization. And then when you go to that organization, your pitch is, we're going to pay you for this. Okay. Right. We know it's going to be a burden to be the first trial here, but you're going to get paid for that. And we're going to learn how to do this right through those trials. And that, that's our business. Then we're going to go show this to other people. So, so why would I assume that the uh, market participants would be better at, um, at predicting an outcome, uh, A, and B, even if they are, um, how... Do I take that prediction and act upon it? So the key idea is we're going to ask all the same people you could have asked some other way, but now they're going to not lie to you so much. <laughs> right. Uh, you, you could have asked people who saw the job candidate or people who saw the menu of dishes, what they thought about which would be the best choice there. And you probably do, and they tell you something. The problem is the way you ask them isn't giving them good incentives to tell you what they think the truth is or to even figure out the truth. There's a lot of other things going on there. So the reason why you want to do this instead is that 
this will take the same people you already have access to and get them to be a little more honest with you and with themselves, honestly. I mean, mm-hmm. in some sense, among themselves, they don't actually know which one of them are best. <laughs> they have some arrogant presumptions, but they don't really know. This right. will show them. <laughs> as they With repeated experiments in the market, the ones who are actually more right will find out that they are, and the ones who are less right will find out that too, and they will then sort themselves according to that. So... Uh, that's the whole rationale here is you're going to get better answers out of them because you're going to ask them in a more effective way. Now, um, you, you asked about, there's lots of problems and issues with almost anything you can think of, especially new things. So I'm happy to walk through them with you, but I first want to preface that with what I often see is I give a creative suggestion, an intriguing suggestion, people nod and says, hmm, that's kind of interesting. And then they want to go through all the things, the worries they might have. But the problem is, I go through all your worries, I give you a decent answer to all of them, and you're still not interested. <laughs> because it wasn't actually the limiting factor. You, you weren't going to do it anyway. So what, and, is the, what, is, what is the limiting factor? Well, so the limiting factor is actually being willing to try things, i.e. Mm. actually taking a risk on something with your own time and trouble, as opposed to pontificating. Again, a lot of people don't mind pontificating, you know, sure. giving little speeches and and taking positions and arguing heatedly about things, that's fun. And then, you know, messing with their own social world or starting a business, that's just a lot more trouble, right? And so that's where people drop the ball. That's where they stop. They say, well, I was willing to speculate about this and argue about it, but I'm not willing to actually do it, right? Mm. And, you know, obviously, again, on the other end, there are businesses who might say, yeah, I've got problems hiring people. I might be willing to consider this. Once you show me you've got a track record and that somebody's worked that out, Mm. And no, it's not, they, they're not well-priced to be the person who does that trial because they're not set up to sell it to other people once they do. So that's the whole point of an entrepreneur in the middle, right? Somebody who takes ideas people talk about and matches them to customers who are actually willing to buy them. And in the middle does the trials actually try stuff. Mm. So, um, well, okay. So, so, so that's, um, I mean that that tells you something about who you need to be finding, right? Uh, to actually right. implement this, which is so I'm, I want to inspire people. So like, so you know, whoever's listening, I'd like to inspire you to, to think about this and try it. But of course, one of your things that's going to happen in your head, you go, well, "That sounds okay," but what about this problem? So I'm happy to walk yeah. through problems, but I just want to preface that by saying, let me you know ask yourself if I solve these problems, will that make a difference? Because <laughs> you know, otherwise, let's not bother. <laughs> you know, ask. Consider the con- objections that are your real concerns and objections as opposed to the ones that you can just make up. So I can tell you what I think the actual most common objections are, which are different than maybe the easiest ones to make up or, you know, argue about. Well, well, I have a related question before we get into some of the common objections. Um, okay. My related question is, um, do you think it would be an maybe you'll just uh push this back on me and say you need to try it out um which would be fair but do you think that um it would be useful to for example try to build out better tooling for this and then just make it easily available right so i'm thinking like if i built out a software product that was designed to be a kind of um uh easily you know 
implemented solution to get a basic prediction market running inside of a generic organization. Um, do you think that would be meaningfully like, you know, that would meaningfully lower the friction? Or do you think it's still just sort of about finding that bold, you know, executive or whatever it may be, who's willing to take a small bet within the company and say, we're going to try this out and see if it can give us better results? I mean, better tools can be helpful, but you have to be careful. There are people who just like to make tools and they're looking for a reason to live or a reason to make the tools. And so right. they're willing to latch on to any sort of story about how if they made this tool, somebody might like it. And they usually don't think very carefully about exactly what that person wants and exactly why they might want the tool. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, tool builders tend to do too little research into what their customers want. And the standard advice, which is correct for, say, startups trying to build tools is just make the simplest tool you can, get users to start using it and get them to tell yeah. you what they do or don't like, and then improve it with respect to that iteration, right? Don't just go off in your corner and you know make up your idea of what product somebody wants and then spend a year making it. That's mm. not how it works. You, you need a good idea of what customers want. So in this context, the key point is there's a bunch of issues to work out about what exactly the customers want, how exactly to feel this. And that's why you don't want to go and just make a whole separate tool and then say, ta-da, without going through that process. So I know actually half dozen or a dozen people who went and made prediction market software. And then I said, okay, and we want to do this trial and, and I need these features. They said, well, I don't have that feature. And I say, well, can you add that feature? No, I'm done. I'm done adding features. <laughs> I went and built my system. <laughs> It's perfect. Right, exactly. It, it had it. all the list of features they had in mind and they're done, right? Right. And you go, but, but the whole point here was to like work with some customers and figure out what they want and try different things to see what works for them. Mm. So so what are what are the more common objections um that get brought up? And I guess are there some I unintuitive or uncommon ones that people often don't think about, but well, there's the real objections experience. and then there's the objections people bring up and they aren't necessarily the same. Okay. okay. So if you want to talk about the real objections, mm -hmm. um, for example, here are the two most commonly successful prediction market applications inside firms. One is we have a budget for some new projects and we say, gee, guys, which new project should we start? Mm. And another is we have a bunch of customers who we put in a focus group, but instead of doing a traditional focus group where they just talk to each other, they do a little betting market with each other in the focus group. In both of these cases, a lot of people have wanted to pay to build these things and they've apparently gotten value out of it. But... In both of these cases, they don't bother to actually pay off the traders based on what actually the actual value achieved in these things. <laughs> so for the focus group, they just pay them bas ba off based on the final price in the focus group after the end of the hour, not basically on anything that, about the product that actually happens later. And when they do these new research projects, they don't actually pay people off based on how the 
chosen products do, they just pay some off based on the final price <laughs> at the end of this initial round of recommending projects. Mm. Which means they're, they're cutting off a lot of the value here in order to get a quick and dirty answer. But right. the, the reason why these are popular, notice is that they are far from topics on which executives would express opinions. That's the key thing to notice here. Executives are always in the habit of expressing opinions about lots of things that happens in the organization. And the key, a key problem is when you set up a prediction market near those topics that the executives speak about, you'll often have the executives express an opinion on the topic and then a market express an opinion on the same topic. And then you know what? The market's right and the guy's wrong. And he makes him look bad and doesn't like that. And it's hard to train these executives to just shut up about certain topics and not express opinions and just look at the market. But these two topics I just mentioned are already topics where they don't have opinions. So when you have a bunch of new research projects, nobody, none of them have started, none of them have any investment in any of them. So they don't really have much of an opinion. And in focus groups, they've already learned not to have opinions about what focus groups will say because they're not very predictable. Right. So this shows you a key problem is that a key obstacle to prediction markets is that they are entering this space where executives are expressing opinions all the time with each other. And they're messing with that space by being more right in ways that the other guys don't appreciate. Mm. So you can think about it like putting an autist at the, in the C-suite table, right? You know, there's an executive table and all the big shots are sitting around talking it. Matter when we, we put a person there at that table and this person has the following features. They have no social savvy whatsoever. They have no idea what anybody wants to hear or what anybody's agenda is. They just know a lot about the business. And whenever a topic comes up, they just tell the truth as best they know it about that part of the business. This person will not last at the C-suite table. <laughs> right, right. They're okay? not going to be very popular. They might become a trusted advisor to somebody who speaks mm -hmm. quietly into their ear, but they're not going to be allowed to talk out loud at the table. But that's what these prediction markets are, in essence. They don't know when to shut up. They don't know how to do anything but just tell their best accurate estimate about whatever question was asked of them. Hmm. And that's an obstacle. So it's it's an obstacle that could be overcome, but there's work to be done. So think of the analogy of cost accounting. Yeah. Okay. You can imagine a world where there wasn't any cost accounting. Nobody did it. And you come in and you say, hey, everybody, let's do cost accounting. That would be interpreted as saying, someone around here is stealing. We need to find out who. Right. And not particularly welcome message, especially by whoever is actually doing the stealing, right? Now imagine a world where everybody does cost accounting. It's just the usual practice. And you come in and say, hey, everybody, on this project, let's not do cost accounting. Right. Right. <laughs> that sounds like I'd like to just steal here and not keep track of that. Would that be okay with everybody? And mm -hmm. that's also going to look pretty bad, right? So you can see okay. how the world of, of executives has had to adapt to the existence of cost accounting. They've had to adjust what claims they make uh, in order to accept the fact that cost accounting will actually speak up on certain topics. And they don't want to contradict that too, obviously. And so people have to adapt to it. So the point is, cost accounting exists. It's a real thing. It's valuable. But in a world without it, there would be substantial adaptation required to get it to be adopted. It wouldn't be just enough to say, hey, here's the thing. Why don't you use it? Mm -hmm. 
you'd have to co-evolve the rest of management practice to match this new social you know disruptor right and over time the organizations that use cost accounting outperform the ones that did not um so right yes in the analogy you're implying that if if an organization were to use these kinds of prediction markets of, about decisions within the organization it would outperform the ones that do not and there's a kind of um structural problem with getting the norm established uh in the first place right now i won't claim unrestricted domain here so i might say prediction markets basically give you more accurate estimates that will help you out compete when more accurate estimates help you out compete but mm. more accuracy doesn't always help you out compete and sometimes it's actually an obstacle so um but there certainly are many topics in organizations where more accuracy would be useful and so that's part of the search and adaptation is to find those topics in order to adopt it so in order to make a successful prediction market application in any organizational context you need to choose the questions how to word them when they will be resolved you know are they decision conditional um you know secondly you have to choose who gets to see the prices maybe not everybody who gets to trade what are the incentives if they trade um you know how long can they persist in these markets as participants um and you know basically who gets to ask the questions even uh who gets to initiate saying i want to see the prices the point is all these choices have a bunch of social implications for that's the organization they mess with things and you're looking for a package of answers to those questions so that it works just like we've done with cost accounting so with cost accounting we've we chose a version of it that works right we account for certain kinds of things in certain ways and not other kinds of things in other ways and certain kind of people can see the numbers and other people can't see the numbers and certain people can audit them and so other people can't right we there was a lot of work to go through to figure out how exactly to adopt cost accounting in organizations and so likewise uh with prediction markets um there's just a lot of like experimentation to be done within the design space um i'm also thinking of some possible features um that you could that you could add that would um, maybe alleviate some of the social concerns internal to an organization. There are definitely some of those. So, so one of which would be like um, a way of anonymizing participants, right, in the market. For example, right. Um, Although you'd want a way to be... you'd want a way to oh, penetrate that anonymity in the case of an accusation of sabotage or something. Sure, sure. Right. So, so you know, you have so a way under rare cases, we could we could you know penetrate that if. We had seen some substantial suspicion of sabotage and we thought some trader might have caused that or something but yes anonymy yeah. in general although uh, you might want one... people to be able to brag about their overall score and not reveal their individual trades uh, right 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 so you can have a zero knowledge kind of model um another one would be uh you know for a larger organization uh, maybe even a smaller one if you have a a board of directors uh, that is a way that you could have some kind of governance mechanism 
outside of the CEO that is somewhat adversarial to the CEO um, that has sort of control over this. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I think like you could get the board of directors to uh, ask to, to as part of their charter to demand that something like this be implemented, uh, whether the CEO likes it or not. And then have a section of the company that's maybe somewhat isolated um, in order to be able to do this. By isolated, I just mean sort of compartmentalized right. in terms of their you're, you're basically asking who gets to ask the questions. Yeah. And that's part of the key design space. So if you've mm -hmm. got, you know, you might want the board to be authorized to ask some questions about the CEO, for example, mm -hmm. uh, but perhaps not ask a whole lot of other questions. Um that's part of who gets to ask which questions. Right, right. So who gets to ask questions, what kind of questions you get to ask. Um, and then there's this other tricky problem which you brought up, um, which is like the, the domain specificity of it, right? Like what kind of questions are actually valuable to get a good answer on? Um, and that's like a, yeah, I think that's a tricky problem too. Knowing like, okay, is there actually value in getting the answer to this question or are we just wasting a lot of sure. effort and, and, and money uh, trying to get a right answer because it I mean, makes if, us feel better? If you developed a better steam shovel, mm -hmm. that wouldn't be very valuable unless we knew which holes we actually wanted to dig. So in a world where we'd never actually dig very many holes, we might need to go out and try to dig some holes and see which were the holes we want to dug. And then we might redesign the steam shovel to be more effective at those kind of holes. Mm -hmm. Is it mud? Is it dirt? Is it rock? Is it warm? Is it cold? Is it wet? Is it nighttime? Is it daytime? I mean, you know, you'd want to learn a lot about the actual holes that people would want to be dug in order to design a good hole digging machine. So mm -hmm. prediction markets are ways to get answers to questions, but you don't want to just make a generic question answering product. You want to find out which questions people actually want the answers to most and then try to design particular versions that answer those questions well. So what are some of the fake objections that people bring up? Because, you know- Well, not so fake, but they may be not the objections that they'll, that'll actually change their mind. Right, right, right. So, so- um, So sabotage I, I just, for one of the, for the listeners, you know, people listening um, or watching this, uh, I think there are some like common objections to prediction markets that are maybe just like not very well thought out in the first place. And, you know, you've been answering these questions for like decades now. So I'm sure you've heard everything under the sun um, about what could go wrong or why people might want to use them or, or whatever. Um, and so I just, what are like some of the more um, common objections that get brought up that might just be a little bit fallacious or come from a misunderstanding of the mechanism um and what you've seen operating in you know um i guess both uh clinical settings as well as you know in the real world implementation given that you've been a part of many different kinds of prediction markets and prediction market related projects so for example in 2003, almost 20 years ago now, a couple of months, we'll have the 20 year anniversary. I was involved with this project called the Policy Analysis Market that was funded by DARPA and it was going to set up betting markets on geopolitical events in the Middle East. 
And two senators had a press conference where they claimed complained about this project on a Monday morning. The DARPA PR person was out of town. By the next morning, the Secretary of Defense in front of Congress declared the project no longer funded. And over that day and over the coming weeks, a lot of people talked about, you know, whether this was a good idea and why. And, you know, the basic scenario would have been, you know, a few hundred people betting a few tens of dollars each about various geopolitical events in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And one of the concerns people had was sabotage. Like somebody was going to go out there and cause a big thing to happen in the Middle East in order to win 30 bucks in our market. <laughs> right. Okay. So the, the size is a little off there, but you could worry, say, on a if we have a project deadline market. So, so this is one of the most promising applications. A lot of organizations have projects with deadlines, and you want to know, will we make our deadline? And people have, in fact, made markets on that. But you might worry, well, if we let people involved in the project bet on whether it'll make the deadline, what if they sabotage the project? What if they make it not make the deadline on purpose in order to win some bets that it won't make the deadline? So one straightforward fix there is just to make sure everybody has a positive stake in making the deadline and they can bet this positive stake up or down, but not below zero. So if we make the deadline, everybody wins something. Some of them win more than others, but just make sure everybody wins something. That's a simple fix to the sabotage concerns in that sort of context. Another concern people had was that the bad guys who are trying to obscure our view of their bad behavior would go just make random bets in the market in order to lose money and mess up the prices. Okay. Um, it turns out that doesn't work. <laughs> turns out that in general, in these sorts of betting markets, when traders expect that somebody's going to come in and try to mess up the price by just making random trades, that makes the prices more accurate, not less accurate. So it just doesn't work. So... Okay, so so someone you're saying that if someone intentionally adds, let's call it noise to a market, right? The trades get better. That's right. What is the what is the mechanism internal to the market that leads to that outcome? So my key qualifier is that the other traders expect this sort of noise trader. So our standard financial market models, the simplest ones have two kinds of traders. One kind of trader is called an informed trader. I'll call them a wolf. They know something and they're going to trade on their information to profit from it. The other kind of trader, who is we usually call a noise trader, I'll call a sheep. They're on average going to trade against the informed trader and lose money. The money the informed trader wins comes at the expense of the noise trader who loses. The sheep, the wolf eats the sheep. Mm. Okay. So this is the standard model of all financial markets. And a key observation in these models and in the real reality is when you add more sheep, you get more wolves. And overall, the price gets more accurate. The number of wolves is endogenous. They choose to show up where the sheep are, and they choose to create the size of their trades to match the size of the trades they expect the sheep to make. So as you add more sheep, you get more wolves who make the prices more accurate. And that's just generically true in financial markets you know, all through history. Then the last thing to notice is this manipulator, this person who's going to go to try to you know, like mess up the prices by pushing the price somewhere, even though they don't have information about it, but they're going to try to mislead you about where the price is. Mm -hmm. They are sheep. They are a noise trader. The key point is they're making trades for a reason other than the information they have. They expect to lose on average from their trades. 
that entices other people to want to trade against them. They are sheep who entice the wolves. Wolves increase the number, increase in the size of their trades, increase in their effort to collect information, and the market gets more accurate. Mm. So, okay, so there's a kind of balancing mechanism. Um, and would you say that this applies even with the number of market participation participants being uh, limited? Yes. In that the market itself reconfigures. So for example, if I have a hundred market participants and I and I gated at that, and let's say 20 of them are wolves and 80 of them are sheep, you're saying that within that limited market, uh, those 20 wolves will readjust themselves internally in order to basically benefit from where the sheep well, are feeding. Are you going to limit how much those wolves can trade each person? Okay, right. So, so there's some caveats there. Right. Now, you know, if you limit how many there are and how much they can trade, then of course they could be overwhelmed mm. by the noise that you're setting up. But that's not how real financial markets go. Usually right. in markets, we let anybody join who wants to. So then the number who join is the result of expectations about what happens if you join. Mm -hmm. And okay, so so there's a kind of natural equilibrium that works out, uh, you're saying, uh, even if you have all these noise traders. I mean, I, I think that's sort of like in the stock market, that's sort of how they always view the the consumer you know, right. trader. Um, so, so like the larger the company, the more noise traders in that company and the more accurate the stock price of that company gets. Mm. We have like a Senate race. That's not as many noise traders as a, as a Senate you know, political race versus a presidential political race. Presidential political race attracts more noise traders, therefore attracts more informed traders, therefore has more accurate prices. Okay. And what about the problem of, um, you know, like uh, other, other like modes of like, let's say market failure. So for example, um, bubbles, right? Um, you know, different kinds of options traders uh, have in some cases made their entire fortunes off of, you know, betting that some segment of the market is acting extremely irrationally based on, uh, you know, a set of beliefs that are just not true about the world. And they benefit tremendously. Now, you might say, okay, well, that's good because ultimately the market corrected itself and the, you know, the bear won out. But, um, that means that in the meantime, there was a lot of people that, you know, lost a lot of money and had to learn a very difficult lesson. Uh, and maybe, you know, the outcome of that particular experiment wasn't overall like beneficial and it would have been better if we could have like gotten to the truth sooner. Um, you know, is there a concern that you have about sort of like market bubbles due to false beliefs propagating within the market. So when we're evaluating institutions, and that's what we're doing here, we're talking about a particular institution for a particular purpose, we need to ask, what was the alternative going to be? What would happen instead of this if we didn't do this? That's a different standard of comparison than saying, like, what if humans were perfect and never made mistakes or something else like that, right? If you take one of these markets and you say, well, I imagine non-humans in this market who never make mistakes and always get things right. And I'm imagining that will go better. This market with humans you've got isn't going to go so well compared to my imagined standard of these perfect creatures. And I might go, okay, sure. But that wasn't the alternative. 
what were you going to do instead without this market? <laughs> How were you going to decide like if you were going to make the deadline or which person to hire or which specials to put in the restaurant? What were you going to do then instead? Mm. Well, you were going to have humans there too, right? Right, right. A smaller okay. subset of humans. You know, a different subset of humans, maybe or maybe even the same set of humans, but they'd be using a different set of institutions to make their choices. Those other mechanisms they have induce them to lie, induce them to get stuck in these same sort of mental bubbles. This just humans can get in a lot of trouble. They just make a lot of kinds of mistakes. And there's no mechanism I'm going to offer you that when I put humans in it will prevent them from ever making any of these mistakes. The best we can do is to give them the strongest and clearest incentives to check for their mistakes and to look for other people's mistakes and to fix them, fix them if they find them. That's the best mm -hmm. we can do. And this mechanism does consistently do that better than others. So we have a lot of data where we compare betting markets to other mechanisms on the same time and topic. We have committees, we have polls. We have a lot of data showing that this does better. When you hold constant the question, you hold roughly constant the participants and the resources, then the key idea here is if you see a market with a bubble, then you can make a profit by fixing that bubble. And that's not so true on a committee. When you see a committee going wrong, they're not always so grateful if you point that out. Right, right. Okay. You don't often, you, get, you often get punished for pointing that out. Often you get rewarded for going along with whatever foolish consensus the rest of them have formed. Mm. So, so a lot of this is about just fixing the incentives internal to the functioning of organizations. And you can get, the claim is that you can get better outcomes. Um, I guess one of the questions I would just have for you um, is, you know, do you have very solid evidence that organizations do do better when they get these prediction markets implemented, even on a small scale? Well, the evidence we have is that when they do a comparison between whatever they were doing before in this new mechanism, they get more accurate estimates from this new mechanism. But as we said, more accurate estimates doesn't necessarily mean more profitable or competitive. Right. So it's, of course, going to be much harder to show that. I mean, I can give you some anecdotes, but um, the fact that organizations typically don't continue these experiments is problematic. Uh, and that's something that, you know, is to be explained through these organizational barriers. So. So there are, there are political reasons why even when organizations have implemented these, they've decided to kill the project, let's say prematurely, um, rather than continue to work on it. Um, is some of it just also that it's just hard work and, someone needs to get credit for for doing it and 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 also be allowed to screw up maybe perhaps so i mean there's a number of common failure modes perhaps the most common failure mode is somebody low in an organization manages to just put together a market and they don't really have organizational support or resources and they just invite people hey come play in my play money market in your free time it'll be great and everybody goes no because uh, they're expecting nobody else to participate either and then not much happens and it goes away so that's in some sense the easiest failure mode 
another failure mode is that um, people want to make these markets and you go and you talk to them and you say, well, what are your most important questions? And we identify them and say, well, let's make markets on those. They go, oh, that's too sensitive. Mm. That would get, get people upset. You don't, you don't want to be asking about that. We can Let's only make a market about trivial things. Right. Like what we're going to have for lunch on Thursday or something. Like, that's okay. That'll be a lot. Right. And then they make markets on relatively trivial things. And those are more accurate. And then after a while, they realize they just didn't care about the answers to these questions. Right. Another failure mode is somebody comes in as a, you know, heroic visionary and they implement the system and they are celebrated as a great visionary and creative person for doing so. And then they get promoted to somewhere else. Whoever comes in and takes over says, I'm not going to get praised for continuing this thing. And I'm really not really seeing a lot of value here, so I'm going to end it. Well, again, consistently, they have more accurate estimates. But the question is, were these more accurate estimates on things you cared about? Um, another failure mode, unfortunately, is where there are executives who say, more accurate estimates are going in the wrong direction for me. So consider a project with a deadline. Often okay. somebody who's running a project with a deadline is trying to motivate effort on the part of people trying to make that deadline. And in order to do so, what they tend to want to do is put people right on the edge of thinking we might or might not make this deadline. If people are pretty confident we're going to make this deadline, they slack off and, and get lazy because, hey, we're, we're, we're fine, right? If people are pretty sure we're not going to make this deadline, they're discouraged. And they're also like, why bother? Because we're still not going to make this. So in order to motivate effort, managers often create the impression that we're right on the edge of being able to make this deadline. If everybody pulls together, we work hard enough, then we could probably make the deadline, but only if. And in order to do that, they're trying to manage expectations about making the deadline. And so a prediction market will probably come in and either tell you, yeah, you're going to make it or no, you aren't. And usually not sit you right on the edge of we might make it or we might not. And therefore it, you know, cuts productivity. There are well, unfortunately ways that people, humans are motivated by being lied to. And managers know that. Managers all over the world know how to lie to their employees to motivate more effort. If you got more accurate deadlines over time, uh and that was reflected in the prediction market, wouldn't it be approaching that line? So if we have accurate estimates of whether we make the deadline, but we don't actually try as hard and we don't actually make as good a stuff by the deadline, then we could mm -hmm. still be losing out competitively. So managers don't just care about whether we make the deadline. They care a lot about how much effort they induce to try to make the deadline. So here's an interesting statistic. If you look at first line managers in front of projects with a deadline, software managers in particular, and if you look at their bosses and you ask their bosses, do I want one of these subordinate managers to be accurate at estimating deadlines or inaccurate? And it turns out they prefer the inaccurate deadline estimating managers because they tend to be more ambitious and try to do more. Mm. Overpromise. The ones who like take on too much and then mm -hmm. realize they're not going to make it and then push really hard at least to get something. That's what their higher level managers prefer. Right. So they don't Things. want the accurate manager. 
Okay, so that's that's maybe an example where it's not that helpful to have an accurate prediction just because of right. the reflexive problem of what people do when they think they know the answer. Right. Another issue is when you have a competitor who might get access to the same information, then you would reveal something to yourself and to your competitor. You maybe don't want to do that. So you might be concerned to have exclusive access to this information and worry that if you allow enough participants in the market, the information will leak to somebody else. Okay. So, I mean, there's a, yeah, yeah. So, okay. So you don't want your competitor finding out about like maybe your internal market, but there could be, for example, let's say two uh, technology companies are competing for the release of a very similar product. Uh, you know, let's say a, a new phone and they're both in kind of parallel development of this and they're expecting to, you know, have the release be sometime next year. Um, there could be an external market that says, uh, I'm betting on, you know, Apple over Samsung or whatever to get their product out first. Um, I'm not sure if that market would be very helpful, but uh, there's like, you know, I guess external versions of this that you could imagine where a broader set of participants besides people internal to the organization themselves are betting on conditions between organizations, um, which is very similar. It, it's the stock price is like a much more crude approximation, but it's very similar to the way that we choose right. to buy and sell stocks. Now, the reason a company wants a stock market in itself is so that it can sell stock and get more capital to spend on its ventures. Mm -hmm. So that's not mediated through the information and the accuracy of the price of the stock, just in order to have a stock market that lets you raise more capital, you'll have to have a market and then it will have a price and that will reveal things about you, whether you like it or not. And so you might prefer, in fact, to have a private capital investment, not mediated by a stock market so that that price effect doesn't happen. Um, if you imagine a market between companies just telling about an entire industry, each company in that industry will want to pay attention to that price, but they won't all necessarily be glad if that price gets more accurate because that will help their competitors as well as them. And it's not clear who benefits more. Mm -hmm. There's also the problem of who pays for it. They even might be glad the market exists and happy to look at the price, but why should they pay for it? Why not let the other companies pay for it? So a problem with information that's just widely available to lots of people that could be widely useful for lots of people is that they each go, let somebody else pay for this. I don't want to pay for it. And they each, of course, would much more interested in exclusive access to information like this, not shared information with everybody else. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's a general problem. I We've sort of spent a lot of time working out the basic idea of prediction markets and more specifically decision markets, that is these conditional markets, how they might get implemented in small, medium, maybe even large organizations. And I want to transition now to this concept of futarchy, which is a, um, I guess, public policy or governance application of these decision markets that we've been talking about. So 
What is the basic concept of futarchy? So if you recall the fire the CEO markets, the mechanism there required two things. One, we needed some discrete decision. Do we fire the CEO or not? And the other thing we needed was an outcome measure. What was the thing we're trying to achieve by that decision? That's a general structure of a decision market, and that can be applied in many contexts. And so in order to inspire people to test this out and work on it, I try to find the most inspiring example. And this I found to be national governance. Okay. We can run a national government on mm -hmm. this mechanism. You might think, how could we do that? Well, government is usually a series of bills that are proposed, and then they either pass or they don't. So that can be the discrete decisions. We just repeatedly ask our decision market, hey, here's a bill. Should we pass it? Then the question is, what's the outcome measure? And for this, we'll need to do a little more work. So I'm an economist, and many economists tend to analyze policy around the world in terms of something like GDP. We say, you know, rich countries, they're better off than poor countries. Which policies tend to promote GDP? Those are probably good policies. So you could start with that as a baseline. You could say, let's use GDP as our outcome measure uh, for these decision markets. But we could probably do a lot better than that. Because there are many standard critiques of GDP as not being a full measure of everything we want. We can add leisure. We can add environmental quality. We can add international respect. We could beef up this measure into a fuller measure of national welfare. Uh, still, we would be measuring it, though, would be a key thing. Every month or every year, we would be issuing the number. What was national welfare this month? Mm. Combining all these different factors that we had measured into a single number, just like we do with GDP. And now that could be the number that we're trying to improve through the decisions of whether to pass particular bills. So again, we can create an asset who pays in proportion to this measure, and then we can have called off trades in those assets, called off if a bill is passed or not passed. So how do I know that a particular piece of legislation is responsible for something that is, um, so distant, like the measure of uh, GDP or or even something a little bit more compounded than that, uh, like this measure of, uh, you know, leisure or, you know, citizen satisfaction or, or whatever it may be. Um, how do I know that, for example, uh, there was not some some prior thing that's sort of a, 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 a that's leading to like some kind of lagging indicator later on um, and it's just the more proximal a uh, piece of policy is getting blamed for it. This happens a lot with, you know, presidential administrations, for example. Oh. Oftentimes, something will go wrong in one uh, president's tenure that was actually largely put in place by the previous uh, incumbent, right? Um, so what's your answer to that? So this is probably easier to explain if we go back to the fire the CEO example, because that's simpler. Uh, you might say, how do I know that firing the CEO is the thing that raised the stock price? Maybe something else did it. Mm -hmm. And the key thing here is that if we just use ordinary expected utility theory, ordinary expected utility theory, it's our standard theory of how to make decisions, says, take a set of decisions. For each one, ask, what's your expected utility if you take that action? And whichever number is highest, take that action. Right there, that's telling you to 
you know, do these conditional expectations and choose. So in essence, that's what these market prices are. They are conditional expectations. So according to the simplest standard decision theory, it makes sense to make these decisions. Now, there can be a bias when the traders don't know as much as the decision makers. So um, in ordinary decision theory, you're supposed to make the decision uh, that has the highest expected utility according to everything you know about the decision, and then you're the one making the decision. But if we split those two roles, we might have a market ahead of time making these two conditional expectations. And what they're asking is, what will the board of directors know later on when they make this key decision? And what if they'll know things we don't know? So then they'd be trying to guess those things that the board might know and their conditional expectations would deviate from what the best decision advice would be in that situation. Because instead of being in the situation where they know everything that they can at that moment and then have to make a decision, they're in the situation of guessing what some other decision maker will do when that other decision maker knows more than they do now. So that creates what I've called a decision selection bias. And you can definitely create examples where, say, firing the CEO would be a good idea, but according to this metric, uh, it the markets would say it's a bad idea because the speculators are trying to guess what the decision makers will know. So the simple fix there is just to make sure that at the moment of decision, uh, there isn't anything more the decision maker make, knows than the market knows. And a simple way to do that is just to put the market directly in charge of the decision. <laughs> that is, if the market price makes the decision, then you can be sure the market isn't being, you know, the decision isn't being based on knowing anything more than the market knows, right? Okay, okay. So now we've gotten to the actual, um, the actual point of governance, right, itself, where, you know, prior we were just talking about, okay, betting on policies uh, and trying to get an idea about whether we would get some sort of desirable national outcome as a result of a given policy. And now you're saying that it follows from your utility theory that in order to remove the decision bias, you need to have the market actually in charge of the decisions, correct? Well, it's not a requirement, but it helps. Okay. So, I mean, another sufficient solution would be just to make sure that whoever is on the board making the decision is freely allowed to trade in the market so that they fully inform the market at the moment before they make the trade, right? That's mm -hmm. also another potential solution. So it's not required that the market be in charge, but it's an easy way to assure that. Mm -hmm. And there could be other possibilities somehow of of you know decision election problems so there are other ways to fix those but I honestly think that for the vast majority of ordinary situations you, you you shouldn't be trying to make the mechanisms more complicated to deal with these unlikely problems you should probably just do the simple thing and then if you start to actually see a problem then you can consider going to the more complicated mechanism so in general in any sort of design space, I think it's reasonable to explore the design space to sort of collect a set of things you might have to resort to if you needed them. But even so, to start with a really simple design, mm. get experience with it, and then 
when you see the signature of a particular problem, then introduce whatever was the fix for that problem. But don't just introduce fixes for all possible problems at the beginning. That's a mistake. right, right. Yeah. Then you run into the problem of like, are these features or bugs? Um, so if I set up a prediction market around public policy, uh, and then, I mean, let's say I either have the decision bias, you know, worked out because let's just say the decision maker takes a, a reasonable stake in the outcome and they make it public and it's well known ahead of time. It's not like they're, uh, putting their bet on like the day the bill is passed or something. Um, then you're expecting that this would lead to better policy over time. And the mechanism by which that would lead to better policy would be that both the information that's made available through the market itself and also the incentives of the market participants would train the market to make better predictions and this would in turn lead to better policy proposals so the the specific claim is that the estimates will be more accurate than what you would have used instead mm -hmm. that only will produce better policy if you gave it the right goals to pursue in terms of your national welfare so a failure mode here is that you don't actually tell it what you want. You tell it what you want people to think you want because that looks good. And then you'll get that, which might not be what you actually want. Hmm. So the, you know, the stronger prediction here is that you will get a sequence of better and better policies at achieving the end that you have declared you want. So in the case of say the fire of the CEO, you will get higher stock prices. Now it might be that you didn't want higher stock prices. You wanted your friend to be CEO and now your friend's not CEO and you're not so happy. So, uh, but you, you would, weren't willing to admit that by, you know, changing the metric in order to include having your friend there. And so you were kind of stuck going with this mechanism. Similarly with hiring, often hiring committees don't just want whoever's best for the organization. They want somebody who they get along with, somebody who will push their agendas. And so if we introduce this new hiring mechanism, we may well not be picking people you get along with or that push your agendas. Okay. Because so, those aren't the outcomes. So the same so, for national welfare. We could pick the wrong measures of national welfare. And I could tell you why we might do that because of mm -hmm. hypocrisy. So one of the most fundamental problems with my whole approach I've just described is it makes you be explicit about what you want. Right. So you Whereas need to be, today you can be you hypocritical be, about what you want. Uh, you need to be goal directed. And uh, I mean, there are many problems with that. One, you could pick the wrong goal. You could pick a goal that you don't actually want, that you it makes you look good or that you think you want. Um, another problem is that uh, who decides what the goal is going to be, right? Is it Congress? Is it some executive? Um, so someone has to decide what the like t t what the telos of the market is going to be um and then in addition to that even if you figure out a decision maker and even if that decision maker um 
understands the goal and gets a goal that it genuinely wants and is not hypocritically or uh, it's not faking the signal, right? Um, then you have the other problem, which is that at least in democracies, uh, there tends to be a lot of like cycling. So the decision makers might change and then you might get inconsistency of the goal over time. And maybe that would be a, an impediment to the improvement of the market for national outcomes. Again, you should compare any new institution to what old institution would have been there instead. Mm -hmm. So if cycling is part of the new institution, but also part of the old, it's not obvious that it's getting any worse. I mean, you always had the problem of cycling and that might just continue. Um, so I think you want to ask, you know, relative to whatever your reasonable status quo alternative is, in what ways is this worse or better? Right. But one of the key things our existing institutions allow more hypocrisy. So you can run for office and say, you really want to save the trees and people could cheer you and vote for you because you said you wanted to save the trees. And then when you get into office, you know that we don't really want to save the trees that much. And so you don't. And people appreciate that and they reelect you because our system allows for hypocrisy. Whereas if you had to actually choose a wait for the trees in the national welfare function, and everybody's watching you when you do that, and now because you promised you have to put a big weight on trees, then you know what happens? You actually get more trees at the cost of a bunch of other people, other things people wanted, and they're not so happy with you maybe. And now they have to decide whether to kick you out for doing what they said they wanted, but didn't really want. Right. So, I mean, this comes up a lot uh, among like people that are, uh, let's say like politically savvy or consider themselves to be politically savvy. They'll often say things like, Oh, you know, so-and-so politician, they're just running on that because that's what they need to get votes. But right. when they actually get in, they're going to do this other thing that I actually want them to do. And I know that, right. they, that they know that and that that's what's going to happen. And so when that outcome happens, they're like, yeah, I'm not surprised. Maybe this is what they wanted. Maybe it's what they didn't want. But um, that's sort of the the cynicism that some people have. And you're saying that a a market like this plausibly would make it so that that kind of cynicism is properly weighted and there's actually a cost to doing this kind of false signaling so i guess what i'm concluding from this is that maybe you're saying that politicians would have to be more honest and voters might not like that voters mm. might want their politicians being dishonest even though they say otherwise, but they lie. So here's another example. Uh, one of the, an alternative to existing police enforcement of crime is we could create bounties on crime and then reward bounty hunters who show up in court with evidence to convict a particular person of a particular crime. Mm -hmm. In order to institute a bounty hunting system, we would have to be pretty explicit about which crimes with which victims and which neighborhoods counted how much for how big a bounty. Right. What actually happens in our current world is that the mayor gets elected and the mayor privately tells the police chief, and I don't even have to say so explicitly, which neighborhoods really count for more. 
-hmm. And then the police focus much more on preventing crime in those neighborhoods compared to other neighborhoods because the other neighborhoods don't vote as well for the mayor. That's hypocrisy. We claim that the law is equal and account, everybody counts equally, but it's not true. So now under a system where we have to explicitly set these boundaries, we face two unsatisfactory alternatives. One is that we actually do what we say and we make crime count the same all across the city, in which case those rich neighborhoods that used to get much better police coverage all of a sudden don't. And there's more crime there and they're unhappy. The other alternative is we have to be very explicit by saying these are the neighborhoods that count more. And now the other people say, how dare you count us less? Aren't we human equal citizens too? So our current system, whereby there's a budget that the mayor allocates to the police department, and then the police chief privately sets priorities for different neighborhoods and different crimes and different mm -hmm. kinds of victims, they can set those priorities based on their best guess about what voters will reward them for. And they don't have to admit that people are not being treated equally. Sure. And I mean, but in this situation where there's less hypocrisy in the system, they wouldn't, I mean, they wouldn't strictly be being treated equally either, right? I mean, there would be there would be other kinds of value judgments, for example, um, right? That so the system participants but, would make about where crime matters and what crime matters and who matters. But I think the key point is we would look worse compared to other places that could be more hypocritical. So for example, most cities allow a substantial amount of prostitution, but very few cities are willing to legalize prostitution. The few cities that legalize prostitution are looked down on and ridiculed by the other cities as sin places of sin not like them, because they make prostitution illegal. They, of course, right. allow it and it exists. It's just officially illegal. So mm -hmm. in the battle to seem righteous and good people, the cities that can claim they disapprove of prostitution and make it illegal seem to win out on the righteous competition. And they are allowed to hold their chest high and their nose high and to be proud of their high morals. Mm -hmm. And... People well, want to be live in those cities. I mean, I mean, I mean, sure that that may be true for for some things. There are other things too where uh, perhaps the cities are being dishonest about the things that they don't have a problem with. So, like the the example would be, um, you know, uh, homelessness or drug use in a city that has like overly permissive policies for people just being on the street and loitering and uh, doing things in public, right? If you think of something like San Francisco, I'm not trying to pick on this city, but that is a city where the voters have continually chosen and allowed uh, policies and politicians that sort of enable a certain kind of environment in the city, even though they will say they will, you know, they will complain about it and they will say that, oh, you know, it's a shame that our city is this way and so forth. But then they keep reinforcing the same policies that lead to that outcome. Um, I think in that case, they like the appearance of being the people who care so much about these people that they want to arrest them. Right. That's right. the image they are trying and successfully projecting. Right. <laughs>
So that's that's how they want to look. This is this is the image they wanted. This is what they get. Right, right. So I guess in that case, then, um, I mean, do you think a a prediction market would improve, let's say, the governance of a city like that? Um, or I guess the improvement is always just relative to whatever the values of the inhabitants are. Um, I mean, the, the key thing we could say is that the decisions, you know, whatever you say you want, you will, in fact, get more of that. Mm -hmm. Are you willing to say what you want? If right. you're not willing to say what you want because you'd rather be hypocritical, then you can do something else instead. Mm, okay, so so I guess then the question is like, if you implement futarchy, um, so the same way for firing the CEO, obviously, often the board yeah. doesn't want to fire a CEO who who would even if that would be good for the company because the CEO is their friend. Many of the people on the board were put there by the CEO. They're in a network of, I help you, you help me. They want to be on other boards. They don't want to be seen as causing trouble. Right. Then they don't want to fire the CEO, even if that would be good for the company, because that would be disruptive and make them look like troublemakers and get hurt their friend. So they don't want an objective mechanism that would make them fire the CEO when that was good for the company. So you'll get more of what you want if you're willing to be honest about what you want. Exactly. And this is a mechanism for increasing the amount of honesty in the system, right? Um, broadly speaking, or um, what's well, a mechanism for assuming you were honest, getting what the getting what you said you wanted. That is, but if you don't, if you lie about what you want, you'll get this other thing, and won't, and it might not be what you want. I'm not claiming you'll get what you want if you lie about what you want. I'm only claiming you'll get what you say you want. Okay, okay, so <laughs> it's a mechanism for getting what you want. Um, right. and you're it's only a mechanism for getting what you want if you were willing to say what you want. It's a better mechanism for getting what you want than existing solutions is the claim. It's a given that you're willing to say what you want. That's the key condition. You have mm. to be willing to say what you want and then you can get it. Okay. All right. And so this is uh, basically what you're imagining. And uh, I guess one sort of final question about the implementation of futarchy um, is do you think that so 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 it's very important when we mention this like i think some people get confused and they think that futarchy implies a system of government but actually it's a mechanism of governance so my question for you what's the difference is well i mean i, I think that that's an interesting question i mean so for example um my background's in political philosophy and one of the like questions that you get in like a you know a, a very basic like undergrad political philosophy course is like you know is democracy a system or is it a mechanism or is it like some other thing right and the answer is sort of like uh all of the above right um democracy is a it is in some sense a consensus mechanism. Uh, it's also uh, we we've designed you know systems of government like like let's say constitutional republicanism that have democracy as a mechanism like at their core, um, and then we sort of colloquially just refer to like a whole bunch of things as democracy, right? This is democracy. That is democracy. We are a democracy, um, and so. 
That doesn't sound like such such a useful distinction. The more useful distinction I would make is I think we're more comfortable with systems that put front and center who's going to be in charge of what. Mm -hmm. Because we primarily want to think about getting our friends in charge. And a system focused on who gets to be in charge of what fits more into this agenda we have is we can we're okay with most any system as long as our people are in charge of it. Right. The main thing we're worried about is whether we're in charge or somebody else is in charge. It's like, who's in charge? That's the question that really animates us. So yeah, yeah. I give you a it's system sovereign. like Futarchy and you go, but I can't tell who's in charge. So I don't like it. <laughs> right, right. You know, who knows what these speculators are going to do? I can't predict that or control that. So how do I know my people are going to be in charge? You're not giving me a guarantee that my people will be in charge with my agenda. Well, well, that I mean, that's not where I was going with this. Um, what I was going to ask you was like, if you think that Futarchy is more amenable to certain systems or or others, right? So that is like, does it need to operate in the context of something like a democracy, or could you have a more oh, authoritarian system? So, if, if decision theory says you need two things to make decisions, you need beliefs and values. This is a thing that reforms beliefs only. To make a simple proposal, what I've tried to do is merge that with our current status quo approach to values. But you wouldn't have to use that current status quo approach. You could use other approaches to values. So for example, we could add up all the value of all the property in the US, get a number that way, and we could just do whatever maximizes the value of US property. Mm -hmm. That could be our thing and nobody votes and then that's just in the constitution or maybe even we allow people to sell citizenship and then we multiply the current price of citizenship times the number of citizens and that's the current market value of all citizenships and we just make decisions to maximize that that would be another yeah. mechanism right and now you realize there's you can come up with a thousand different variations with different ways to choose the value part mm -hmm. um like you, you could have an uh like a ruling regime ruling family and you could just maximize the how long that family will last into history question is right. what policies should we make so that our family never leaves never loses power forever that would be another goal you could pick value you could pick as the value the futarchy was trying to achieve and so futarchy is just basically telling you how to get whatever you said you want i i my default is to match that with a democratic way to figure out what you want but it doesn't have to be matched that you could match it with any other way to decide what you want. Hmm. Okay. So, and what is sort of the, I guess, uh, poor pitch then if, you know, if it's sort of system agnostic and it's value agnostic, um, it seems to me like, um, effectiveness. <laughs> is, okay. You know, Whatever values you have, if you really just wanted to achieve those values and didn't care how, as long as those values were achieved, I've got a system for you. Right. Right. If, and I might say that's in our world today, ideology is often about not just values, but also about beliefs about what works and what context, things like that. And so mm -hmm. people have political opinions about all those things. And our current system mixes up people's opinions on all those things and making choices. Right. And so, so one. One, one criticism is just that um, people are willing to actually sacrifice a lot of their values if they can get things that just work, right? So like good governance in the sense of just being competent 
state capacity. Right. So you want this is just going to be very confident and it'll also get the values that you wanted. So this right. would be just extremely confident. Mm -hmm. uh, assuming that those are the values that I guess it's, your citizens find desirable. Well, whatever are the actual values the system is set to achieve, it will achieve those. And the question mm. is, can you pick those? Can you pick so, what so you I want? Could, I, I could imagine the leader of like, let's say a very small country wanting to implement something like this. Um, well, he, and, has to, he has to be explicit about what he wants now. That is, and that's right. a problem. Because right. he might really want to just make his regime very secure. But he has various supporters without whose support he won't stay there very long and he needs to mm -hmm. give them what they want. And so now can he be, how explicit can he be about who his supporters are and what they want and include that all in a measure of what the regime wants? Right. So there's this problem of like over-optimization. Like if I'm optimizing for the longest lasting regime, for example, that's going to come at the expense of a bunch of other uh, governance objectives. Right? And that may not actually be for the benefit of uh, of the people. So we started by discussing GDP and maybe some other like compounding um, uh, measure of. Um, but look, honestly, uh, I think it doesn't make that much difference because like the worst case of governance in the world in the last century or two are just governments that just do bad by pretty much all these metrics. We just. Governments were just making big mistakes, huge mistakes. And most any of these metrics would, would just say, no, we're not doing these things according to these metrics. If people were informed about the consequences of their policies, they wouldn't be starting crazy wars and crazy projects and genocide and just all sorts of stuff that people have been doing. They just wouldn't do those things for a wide range of plausible goals. Mm -hmm. Right. So... Okay, so so yes, better governance, um, more competent governance. You know, maybe you could get better goals uh, along with it. That's sort of like a second order uh, effect that might might turn out. Um, I wanted to just sort of uh, cap this by asking you like a little bit more of a fun question. So you've said as well that you're interested in demarchy. Um, for those that aren't familiar, demarchy is a system whereby um, the rulers or the setters of various policies are basically um, elected at random. And so the canonical example of this was that, you know, Greek democracies operated uh, under this system for some period of time. And I just wanted to ask you, like, do you think, uh, like, what do you find interesting about demarchy? Um, and do you think it's like a, you know, a worthwhile um, experiment to run. So it is often used in organizations today when you say have a rotating chair or things like that, or people rotate through various offices. You know, there's the treasurer and there's the meetings committee and there's, the, you know, et cetera. And there are organizations today that just rotate people through those mm. in order to, um, you know, to be fair and to get people different experience. So, um, so it's not only ancient Greece that does this. It is a somewhat common practice today. Um, one of the most interesting aspects of it is what kind of democracy do people actually want? So, you know, 
we give a lot of lip service to democracy in our world that we would democracy is great. But then when you come down to like, what is it exactly? What counts as it? People get a little vague. And so this, in some sense, you know, is a very vivid, strong version of democracy, if you like. So it's kind of just fun to ask people, well, why don't you like this? <laughs> if you like yeah. democracy. So I don't know that I like it that much, but I like it as a probe to like to ask people what they do or don't like. Um, something that I'm I'm more intrigued by is um, we have a representative system today, right? Whereas we could have more of a jury system. I mean, we could just you know elect 500 jurors instead of 500 representatives. Mm-hmm. But we could also have an intermediate version where. Um, a representative says every week I'm going to invoke another jury from my district and I'll do what they say. So that's mm. actually completely legal and something anybody could have been doing for a long time and nobody does. And it's just interesting to notice, to, to point that out to people and say like, you want more democracy? This would be feasible. You could you could elect a representative who promised and would, you know, impanel a jury every week, tell them what the votes are that week and vote the way the jury says. And apparently you don't like that idea. Apparently nobody wants to run on that platform. So apparently this level of democracy is not what you want. And that's kind of interesting, right? Well, apparently you don't want to be directly in control of these decisions. You want this guy in between you who will think more and maybe disagree with you about what to do. Yeah. Okay. So, so there are like, um, there are, you know, ways in which you could have even more direct democracy, even within the constraints of the current system. Right. And it's um, worth noting. We don't choose those. Right, right. So it's worth noting that there's some sort of um, there's some sort of bias to the indirectness. You know, I mean, we have a Republican system kind of for a reason. Um, and. Yeah, I guess I guess it, the proof is in the pudding in terms of what people actually do um, and then what they what they say they care about. Um, I do find this jury thing uh, quite interesting. I think you could. Um, yeah, I mean. I'm not sure if someone who got elected and then went and did that would actually be able to get elected again. <laughs> right. Well, that's the point. <laughs> that's why they don't do it. It's unclear how, how much people actually want to be ruled by their fellow. Um, I think voters. it's pretty clear that most politician candidates don't believe this would work, which is why they don't run on this platform. So right. they are pretty confident this won't work for them. I, I could so, just imagine it'd be fun to pose this question to like Bernie Sanders or someone like that, you know. Um, why don't you let the people of Vermont tell you what to do every week? Right. Um, and uh, and see what happens. I mean, maybe it could work. Maybe they would become very popular. I have no idea. But um, you could even just do it as an advisor and say, I'm going to panel this jury. I won't always do what they say, but, you know, I'm going to I'll collect a track record and I'll tell you when I disagree with them. Mm-hmm. They don't even do that. Right. And. I guess the only thing I would say about uh, returning to the topic of demarchy is that if it's just true that most uh, people and I would say most politicians as well don't really know that much about the topic that they are tasked with making decisions about, you know, for example, a bunch of U.S. politicians right now are having conversations about AI regulation and right. almost none of them know anything about it. Um and yet ultimately the way in which they are very representative of their citizens right right and and so we're getting good representation but um i guess what that indicates to me is that maybe we 
wouldn't be so much worse off if um if you know the implementers of uh of our policy were were chosen at random i mean i don't see why they would be any worse than um the current representatives i'm afraid we're out of time because that looks like a big topic <laughs> we would take a while to get through that one yes all right well thank you robin hansen um for coming on the show it's been a pleasure speaking with you um i really appreciate you taking the time and um uh hopefully we can speak some other time thanks for having me